Hello, old chum. How art thou? I am doing splendiferously today. How are you, my friend? Well, I'm just rather chuffed to be here. I guess you may be wondering why I'm speaking with a British intonation, but it all re- it all relates to this incredibly intense dream I had. Basically, there was this chap called Henry Ainley, who was a great thespian of the British stage. My dad's whole family are from England. And I don't know, I just remember as a child being told about our ancestor, Henry Ainley, the great actor. I hadn't thought about him in many, many years. And I am potentially going to be working on a project that is extremely loosely related to thespianism. That's about all I can say about that. But so somehow the idea of Henry has infiltrated my subconscious. And I had this incredibly vivid dream the other night where he came to me. What did he say? He said a lot of things, obviously all in iambic pentameter. Oh, he was, of course, wearing a doublet and tights with a dagger. Did he wear his beaver up, my lord? How does the younger Henry Ainley feel about this? This is the other thing that I remember as a child, my grandmother being like, saying to my brother Harry, who is a, is really Henry, but he had a lot of style. I mean, his collars and his hair swish, but he doesn't actually look that dissimilar to the current Henry Ainley. No, they really do have a lot in common. And here he is in the Wikipedia photo in Paolo and Francesca 1902, which I, what I would give to watch that performance. I know, I'm afraid there weren't a lot of people filming on iPhones at the time, but maybe we can... <laughs> Well, maybe in one of your dreams, you will witness it and you can share with me. I also think, I I just think it is worth pointing out, just in case there's someone listening who doesn't know this, that Monica is an award-winning public speaker. At age 11, we were in a contest to see who could give the best speech in French about l'école idéale, the ideal school. And the winner was Monica Ainley for our school. And did you not then go on to compete, like, nationally? No, I won the Ontario, which is our province. That is a large province. It's a very, very populous. It's the most populous province in Canada, and it's large. So that's a big deal. So I think Henry has been, perhaps, watching over you for some time. Anyway, Henry moved me to such a great extent in this dream, wherein he visited me, that I felt passionately obliged to do something that I've been considering doing for a long time, which is indulge in an acting class or two. So I've just had my first one yesterday and I like to make things really complicated for myself. So I'm doing it in French with a French (laughs) acting coach. And he told me that I had good vim or vigor, I suppose would be the, the way of saying it in English but that I get carried away when I'm doing dramatic scenes and like I don't need to shout as much as I actually do, which is, you know, I honestly, I didn't know what to expect. So so I'll I'll take that as a compliment, I guess. I wholeheartedly support this endeavor. Maybe I should back up for a second. Back up. We are hosting an imaginary dinner party. This is our season finale. Mm-hmm. Season one finale. Bookends. Imaginary dinner parties. We opened the season, you may remember, with Nora. We're going to close it with Leonard. 
I remember you well in the Chelsea Hotel. You were talking so brave and so sweet, giving me head on the unmade bed while the limousine. Leonard holds an extremely special place in both of our hearts. And the opportunity to imagine him over for dinner is one that we have dreamt about for many decades. Is that correct? I mean, I just I fancy for both him of us so when I say much. that, right? I've been imagining this for a long time. <laughs> and we have a wonderful guest who will be joining us later. But who who was I? I just want to tease it for one sec. We won't tell you who she is, but she was an actual, real, live, close friend of Leonard Cohen's, which is yes. quite major. And worked closely with him. Don't look at the show notes. <laughs> You'll have to see. But first, we are. Let's talk about Leonard because you know this is a really big deal. I'm trying to remember when Leonard first entered our friendship. I think it was probably around grade ten. Probably. I mean, the thing with Leonard, I, I, you know, just for some context here, if you're Canadian, well, I was trying to work this out, actually, because I was like, do was Leonard Cohen so at the forefront of our consciousness because we're Canadian? Obviously, so is he. You know, my dad's from Montreal, from the same neighborhood, from Westmount, which is an English-speaking neighborhood of Montreal that Leonard Cohen is from. And when I first, actually, when I was first living in Paris, I thought, well, I don't know. I listened to Leonard Cohen all the time, but I didn't necessarily think that French people would even know who he was. Well, it turns out, I mean, my husband is completely obsessed with Leonard Cohen as well. And he was really big in France because trust the French mm. to get, you know, into that brilliant. There's a lot of subtlety and irony and a lot of, but a lot of darkness too. And they're not scared of that kind of thing. But I don't mm. know. When did I first become aware? I mean, I'm sure it would have been you know, my dad playing a Leonard Cohen album in the car, which is how I was introduced to a lot of really great music. What about you? Yeah. When did you first become aware of Leonard? I too was introduced to a lot of great music in your dad's car, as well as in, you know, with my parents. I, I think it was his poetry that I found first. So Leonard did begin as a poet when he was still an undergrad at McGill University in Montreal. He published his first book of poetry, Let Us Compare Mythologies. He was 20, and I believe he was 20, possibly even just under, and he won awards with that and immediately burst onto the scene of the up-and-coming Canadian poets. And then soon after that, uh, when he graduated from McGill, he went to Columbia to do his master's in New York. He met the Beats. He decided, and he talks about, it, it's funny, and it, this... um great biography by Sylvie Simmons called I'm Your Man. She talks about how, you know, he, he enjoyed meeting the Beats and thought they were interesting, but also thought that they were, that it was kind of a fad. And hmm. that's not the word that he uses, but the idea was like, you know, they're not respecting the tradition. We in Montreal are onto the real thing here. It's interesting what you're doing. And I like listening to it, but and the biographer, Sylvie Simmons, makes a joke. He was a real joiner in high school and university. He was the president of the student council. He was in all kinds. He was in the debating club, an excellent debater. You know, surprisingly, he was like a real joiner. And she said, for somebody who was such an enthusiastic joiner, it's interesting that he had no interest in joining that particular group, given the extent to which they were becoming the group to join at the time. But he sort of saw past, you know, he saw a bigger picture and had such a reverence for a more classical approach to poetry 
that he kind of thought that's great and that's an influence perhaps, but that's not for me. Can I just stop you on that? You know, because I was yeah, reading yeah, yeah. about that high school phase as well, that he was actually such an enthusiastic, you know, extracurricular. He was part of bands. He was doing the student council. He was like very, um, he had a very balanced kind of CV and it's kind of like smart, enthusiastic, fun sounding kid. And it's funny because, you know, I was listening to a BBC Radio 3 radio segment he participated in in the 90s. And they start off by saying, you know, Leonard Cohen is known as a a dark, brooding ladies man. And I think that, you know, I want to go into later how his songs can, if you look at them on too surface a level, you could obviously make that assumption. He had some very famous affairs. He definitely loved women, but I think he was a little bit more multifaceted than that, wouldn't you say? Oh, I mean, to read his poetry is to have, I mean, he's serious and he's spiritual and he's profound and there's sadness and darkness, but he's hilarious. Yes. You know, his sense of humor is always there. And I think that's, for me, that's when I was young and I first discovered his poetry. I couldn't believe that poetry could be so much fun and so kind of, you know, spiritual, but also sexual and just that he was clearly having such a great time with it. And so it it spoke to me immediately. And yeah, to the point about him being this kind of like, you know, the patron saint of the depressives or, you know, there are all these different cliches or nicknames. Actually, if you Google Leonard Cohen, nicknames. People have come up with like hundreds and hundreds of ways of describing him. And it's just not true. Like, yes, his voice gets deeper with every, you know, got deeper with every passing decade. And in his last album was extremely gravelly. And his music and poetry contains real life, you know, sadness, grief, etc. But he says in that, I listened to that same BBC piece, thanks for sending it to me. And, you know, the he was like, first of all, how can those two things be compatible? You know, who are all these ladies who are attracted to this Grim Reaper figure? And and also since, you know, people love, like sad songs are a part of our lives. What, you know, what's with the need to be cheerful all the time? It doesn't mean that you're never cheerful to sing about things that are real. The sad so, songs often yeah, contain I, humor, though. Always. There's always a little wink. Oh, Yeah. You know, I want to oh, read yeah. a little bit from Who by Fire, which is one of my favorite, very, very favorite songs. And it's really, really dark. But it's also kind of funny. For me, because we're talking about Leonard Cohen, both as a poet and as a as a singer-songwriter, I think it's important to, that this absolutely stands alone as a poem, even though once you hear it to the music, it's I feel all the more beautiful because the singing is just fantastic and the harmonizing. Who by Fire is based almost definitely on the Yom Kippur prayer. I might be pronouncing this wrong. Unetene Tokef, part of which is as follows. On Rosh Hashanah, it is written and Yom Kippur is sealed. How many shall pass on and how many shall come to be? Who shall live and who shall die? Who shall see ripe old age and who shall not? And it goes on and on. So the way I see Who by Fire is that Leonard is questioning who gets to make the calls on Judgment Day and and based on what. So I kind of think of St. Peter at the gates of heaven calling on those who are waiting to get in. It starts, and who by fire, who by water, who in the sunshine, who in the nighttime, who by high ordeal, who by common trial, who in your merry, merry month of May, and who by very slow decay, who shall I say is calling? 
And who shall I say is calling is what my mother, who's sort of very quite proper about these things, would always say. We should say when someone said, hello, hi, can I speak to your mom, please, darling? And we were to say, who shall I say is calling? You know, it's almost something that you teach a child. So in order to understand Leonard's confidence from a very young age, using, I guess, such a light touch with, with something as heavy as, you know, the entirety of religious tradition. So his two grandfathers were respected rabbis and scholars. His paternal grandfather was the president of the biggest synagogue in Montreal. And then on his mum's side, his grandfather, with whom he lived for a while in his childhood, was a Talmudic scholar and also a rabbi and wrote these books. He was considered like the Prince Grammarian, I think was his nickname. He was incredibly well-respected as an author and as a scholar in the Jewish faith. And so the history of this family is of people who are entrenched in the religion and who I think his ability to play with something that in other hands would be a little bit hard to play with (laughs) came from in part this like he grew up surrounded by these texts, surrounded by people who had spent their lives studying these texts I think he was two when his paternal grandfather passed away. So they weren't, but his uncles and his, you know, just his family was, and they were, they lived on Belmont Avenue in Westmount, as Monica said, just a few minutes from that synagogue that was so much a part of his family life. And he started carrying a notebook around with him at a very young age. His father died when he was nine. His father, who had been in the First World War and who had come back wounded and never entirely the same, had been sick throughout his childhood and then died when he was nine years old. So, you know, he had this early experience of profound loss and he also was just saturated in religion and religious literature and history. Traveling lady, stay a while until the night is over. I'm just a station on your way. I know I'm not. And so, which era of his poetry are you most attracted to? Because he obviously went through a lot of different phases, as you've just alluded to. Yeah. So, I actually have a show and tell. I have some show and tell here. This one's been torn to shreds because my daughters decided that they liked it, but it's. It's made out to my mom with love from John and the sun shines on. So that was her first, that was her high school boyfriend. So this is from the 70s. So I think it was through this book that I first encountered Leonard Cohen. It's selected poems. So it's Let Us Compare Mythologies. It's 1956 to 1968. So that contains Let Us Compare Mythologies, The Spice Box of the Earth, which was his second poetry collection, and some other subsequent poems up until 1968. And, you know, you can see there's this, even on the cover, you have three different pictures of his face. I think he he even spoke about this. I think he spoke about the fact that a biography is considered complete. Oh, it was Virginia. A biography is considered complete, Virginia Woolf wrote in Orlando, if it merely accounts for six or seven selves, whereas a person may, w- may well have as many as thousand. So this collection would have blown me away as a young person. And then what I remember really distinctly was 2006 when the Book of Longing came out and Leonard Cohen was promoting it. There was an event at a bookstore called Indigo in Toronto that he was going to be performing at, and I wanted to go so I remember. I remember this so well. (laughs) I was desperate to go, 
and to have my book signed and to meet him. This also shows the like sophistication of Emma as a teenage girl because most, I mean, most people just wanted to meet Justin Timberlake. I mean, that's not true. You were right there. Oh no, I wanted to meet him, but we were like the most (laughs) intense closeted geeks. Like, anyway, go on. We were longing to meet Leonard and have him sign our book of longing. And the the only thing that could have stood in the way was I had to direct a one-act play. We all did. Monica and I were both, we were in drama class together, of course. And the final was to direct a one-act play. And we'd been working on them for months and we'd auditioned our actors. And basically, there was no way I was going to let my actors down, let alone forfeit the grades because... Like the culmination of your career as a as, of as one's a career student. as a drama student, and our teacher Angie Silverstein took it very seriously, as did we all. As did I. As did I. And there was the way in which the slots of when your play would be performed was, you know. So anyway, my my play was being performed at the exact time that Leonard Cohen was performing in Toronto uh, outside of this bookstore when I could have gone to meet him, and I had no choice but to be in the sound booth. And it was excruciating, but also wonderful. And the play went really well. Thanks for wondering. (laughs) And my dad brought me back this book that I'm holding right now. (gasps) One of my most prized possessions. So written in pencil to Emma Knight, Warm Regards, Leonard Cohen, Toronto, 2006. And with a stamp, Order of the Unified Heart, which was a stamp that he himself had drawn and made and he stamped it on the little bird drawing here on the title page he had his own stamp for his book signings oh yeah my dad when he gave this book you know to have signed on for his daughter leonard said does she have a favorite poem obviously i had been prepared you know i'd I'd briefed my dad for this and i'd said tell him it's the one on page 11 so my dad said page 11 (laughs) (laughs) and leonard apparently looked at him with just a twinkle in his eyes and he said how old did you say she is my dad said 17 and Leonard said watch out (laughs) well please you have to read us what's on page 11 it's not even one of the sexiest ones like there are a lot of sexual poems I mean it's called the book of longings though it's called the book of longing and a lot of it was written atop Mount Baldy when there was not much to be done outside of longing Um, because he was you know training to be a Buddhist monk so This is kind of a long poem, but I'll read you the beginning. It's called Better. Better than darkness is fake darkness, which swindles you into necking with someone's antique cousin. Better than banks are false banks, where you change all your rough money into legal tender. Better than coffee is blue coffee, which you drink in your last bath, or sometimes waiting for your shoes to be dismantled. Better than poetry is my poetry, which refers to everything that is beautiful and dignified, but is neither of these itself. Better than wild is secretly wild, as when I am in the darkness of a parking space with a new snake. Better than art is repulsive art, which demonstrates better than scripture the tiny measure of your improvement. Better than darkness is darkless, which is inkier, vaster, more profound, and eerily refrigerated, filled with caves and blinding tunnels in which appear beckoning dead relatives and other religious paraphernalia. Better than love is wuv, spelt W-V-E, which is more refined, superbly erotic, tiny, serene people with huge genitalia, but lighter than thought, comfortably installed on an eyelash of mist and living grimly ever after, cooking, gardening, and raising kids. Better than my mother is your mother, 
who is still alive while mine is not alive. But what am I saying? Forgive me, mother. <laughs> Better than me are you. Kinder than me are you. Sweeter, smarter, faster. You, you, you. Prettier than me, stronger than me, lonelier than me. I want to get to know you better and better. Written atop Mount Baldy, 1996. Well, I love it. Now, I have to read you the one on the next page, too. It's much, much, much shorter, but it just shows you... Oh, yeah, this is this is his sense of humor. I love this. The lovesick monk. I shaved my head. I put on robes. I sleep in the corner of a cabin 6,500 feet up a mountain. It's dismal here. The only thing I don't need is a comb. Wait, I have a question about the Mount Baldy, the whole Mount Baldy situation, because let's be real, you're more of a Leonard Cohen expert than I am. I mean, you're the real deal here. Was the monk thing an experience that he just wanted to have temporarily, or was he actually planning on like practicing Buddhism as a monk, like being a monk for the rest of his life? No, I think it was a journey. I think he was on, I mean, I, I don't know the answer. You'd have to ask him. But, you know, from my understanding, it was part of his spiritual journey. And it was about seeking a different way of being. We're serving Chateau Latour at the dinner party, which I now wonder, I think we still should because it's been some time since he, it will have been quite some time since he's had it. But he he said in multiple interviews in 1993 that he was onto, you know, a a routine of drinking three bottles of Chateau Latour before he went on stage for every performance. Um, so, you know, fame and being a musical superstar. And he was sharing. He poured glasses for other people, he was <laughs> hastened to add. But, you know, he was not in the best spiritual place. He had been suffering from depression at least since his early 20s. So he, he had been through a lot. And from my understanding, he was seeking... A different way of being. Is the glory, then mine must be the shame. You want it darker. We kill the flame. So what are we gonna just sorry, because we are having this dinner party. We've got a very important guest coming. You know, I feel like we need to just sort out what we're gonna be wearing, because Right now, both of us are sitting here like in our pajamas and mm. we got to get our act together. OK. OK. Well, I, I, I have two ideas for outfits. One of us is going to be Suzanne and one of us is going to be Leonard or tributes to both. Wait, which Suzanne? Suzanne from the song? Yes. So Suzanne from the song, because there's actually some very vivid fashion description in that wonderful song. So I one think of it's important, Mon, though, that you tell us, we know that Suzanne is one of the most beautiful songs of Leonard's, but later in life, he had a long relationship with another Suzanne. And in fact, there were two very separate Suzannes. This is the earlier Suzanne, who is now identified as Suzanne Verdal. And she was a key figure amongst the like artistic community in Montreal. You need to know that Montreal, I mean, it's still really cool. It was like really cool in these days. She was the kind of gorgeous lady who um, hung out with a lot of jazz musicians, carefree. She was married to um, a very prolific, cool guy on the scene as well, who I believe was a sculptor or became one. And they were like the hottest couple They ever. were the hot ticket in town. Everyone wanted to be friends with them. Leonard was. But just friends. And one day he ran into her down, by, down at the harbor in Montreal which is where like the kind of boats come in. And he describes this imagery. It's on St. Lawrence River, right? If anyone's been to Montreal, you can probably picture this a little better. So there's some debate as to whether, from what I've read, they were not at all like having an affair or even particularly meeting on, per I mean, they were friends, but he ran into her at the harbor and she um, had him over and 
gave him this special tea and oranges from China, and he touched her perfect body with his mind. Yeah, from what I've understood, he would have quite liked to have touched her perfect body with something other than his mind, but the option wasn't on the table. Yeah, and I think that he describes how it was such a sensual time and this piece of music and poetry is very sexy, but it's also a lot of other things, you know, and it's it's very evocative of an era. And you want to travel with her And you want to travel blind And you know she will trust you For you've touched her perfect body with your mind I like where you're going with this. So am I wearing, or is one of us wearing rags and feathers from Salvation Army counters? Okay, so then I came across this essay by actually the former editor-in-chief of British Vogue, Alexander Shogman, very good writer. And the text was originally commissioned for BBC Radio 3's The Essay, which is was a great program. But a version of it now can be found in the Vogue archives online if anyone else wants to read it. But I just wanted to read a couple of excerpts from it because it, it got me really inspired about how we could dress like Suzanne. This woman's obviously a very respected fashion editor. So she writes... The house near Paddington Station belonged to a diplomat. He'd been posted abroad, leaving his teenage children at school in England, and it was there, in the low-ceiling sitting room on a Saturday afternoon in 1973, that I first heard Leonard Cohen's Suzanne. I was 16, and as I say, it was 1973 and Suzanne became my heroine. It was a period when the prevailing fashion was tilting from hippiedom of the late 60s into the glam rock of the 70s, and Suzanne, of course, was perfectly dressed. And then she goes on. She was wearing rags and feathers from Salvation Army counters, which in 1967, when the song was first recorded, would have been an appropriate bohemian chic. A chic that was still a powerful currency in 73, and which remains so today. Especially in London, I want to point out. This is a real London kind of look. You see in that insouciant throwaway glamour that has been epitomized over the years from Marianne Faithful to Kate Moss. Suzanne and all the other Suzannes out there are almost entirely constructs of songwriting. You know from the outset she has disregarded the conventional path of a neat little home and the tedious confines of a monogamous relationship. And I knew, and if you are 16, this counts for a lot, that she was one of my kind because of the way she dressed. Suzanne dresses from the old clothes that are donated to the Salvation Army, but there is nothing dour or pitiful about them, nor anything remotely sad or tragic about her dressing from there. You never feel that she gets her clothes from the Salvation Army because she has to. No, she chooses to. The rags and feathers she wears are surely light and sensuous. They flow around her body, letting her move unfettered. I, I, I really love that. And I feel like it's a, I, I just want to say, by the way, that my daughter Mia's uh, second name, her middle name, one of her middle names is Suzanne. That's how much I love this song. And I was really interested to see, I mean, it's also my mother's name, but this song plays into it heavily as well. I love that. And the imagery of this woman sort of floating around and the insouciance of it, I think is really inspiring. And as a foil, one of us will be wearing a, because we know that Leonard, having come from a family of suit makers, was, you know, born in a suit. Right, exactly. Uh, and that he was impeccably dressed. Mm-hmm. And he was rather a fan of the pinstripe suit. Um, oh. Yeah. And, and, and rather a fan of the double-breasted suit, which can look great on a tall man, can be harder to carry off as a woman. But I think, I think maybe I should be Suzanne and you should be Leonard in a pinstripe suit. 
actually, I have a great brand, a friend of mine, an Italian friend of mine, uh, her brand is making beautiful three-piece pinstripe navy blue suits at the moment. So I'll link to those in the show notes and everyone can check Perfect. out. But is anyone going to wear a famous blue raincoat? Well, I know I was coming to that. I think that if you're doing the suit, you should throw a famous blue raincoat over top just for, for the to and from journey, you know. <laughs> Where are we having this dinner party? Because I have a suggestion, but I wondered if you had a location in well, mind. No, go on. I, I hadn't figured that out yet. Okay, so given that he grew up at 599 Belmont Avenue in Montreal, and given that your father grew up around the corner on Argyle, 413 Argyle, I was wondering if we could have the dinner party at Argyle. Well, I mean, I would love to say yes. We actually, very sadly, at the death of my grandmother a couple of years ago, sold that house. But it's an imaginary dinner party. Yes, but I have news that it's been beautifully restored. Mm. It did need a bit of work. And some very lovely people have just bought it. So maybe they'll let us crash, um, you know, take over their house one last time because I have so many great childhood memories there. It's such an incredible house. I have fewer, but also wonderful memories. Monica and I would get dressed for a night out in Montreal and her grandmother would say, okay, come, let me look at you. <laughs> and we would go <laughs> into her bedroom and do a twirl and she would, you know, mm, maybe a brown shoe. You know, she would just make some minor tweaks. She was a very elegant lady, but she was wonderfully honest in her elegance. And earmuffs, earmuffs, Susan Ainley, if you're listening, um, she, would, she would throw whatever curfew rules had been imposed from Toronto out the window and send us off into the night. Yeah, she'd say, now what is your curfew? And we'd tell her and she said, ah. <laughs> never mind, never mind. You have fun. Uh, and Montreal is fun. Of mercy, they are not departed or gone. They were waiting for me when I thought that I just can't go on. I would like to talk about food because I think we've covered a good era here. An important aspect of Leonard's creative life was the time that he spent on the Greek island of Hydra. Now, I was recently reading about how Hydra came to play such an important role in his life, and it is a serendipitous series of events that led to his buying a house there. So... I'll quickly tell you that he, after New York, he and his very, very close friend, Irving Layton, were trying to figure out what to do next. They applied for grants with Canada Council of the Arts, and Leonard received $2,000 for his pro his project of visiting ancient capitals and writing a novel. And so he first went to London. The ancient capitals that he listed were, I think... <laughs> I think the city. I think the cities that he said he was going to visit were London, Athens, Jerusalem, and Rome. And yes, he received two thousand dollars and immediately applied for a passport in December 1959. Shortly after his return from a poetry reading at the 92nd Street Y, where Adam Gopnik regularly gives lectures in New York with Irving Layton, Leonard boarded a plane for London. So he then ended up at this amazing boarding house in London where there was no space for him. And the woman who ran the place said, you want to write a novel? Okay, you can sleep on a cot in the living room. As long as you're the first to wake up, you put away your cot, you sweep the floor, you put coals in the fire, and you produce for me two pages daily of your novel, then you can live here. <laughs> like a Shakespeare and Company type of... And he did that. You know, he was he was good at following those kinds of orders as he would later show on Mount Baldy with Roshi, his his master. And so anyway, so his time in London was really interesting and he had all kinds of colorful friends, but one very rainy, cold day when he was feeling particularly gloomy, 
he apparently went into, just because it happened to be there, the Bank of Greece for shelter from the rain, and saw that everybody working there seemed to have, you know, a nice tan going. And it put him in mind of Greece. Oh, yeah, the teller wore a pair of sunglasses and had a tan. And the man apparently told Leonard that he was Greek and had recently been home. The weather, he said, was lovely there at this time of year. Leonard remembered that on his application for the Canada Council grant, he had said he would go to the old capitals, Athens, Jerusalem, and Rome. And so, on Hampstead High Street, he stopped in at a travel agent's and bought tickets to Israel and Greece. And he went first to Jerusalem and then to Athens. And on his way into the islands, he saw Hydra, which is one of the first islands that you'll find on your way into the islands from Athens. And it was a coup de foudre. And he ended up buying a house there and living there on and off for a long period of time. And that is, of course, where he met Mariana. So long, Marianne. It's time that we began to laugh and cry. All this to say that I think we should serve a combination of things. One, I want there to be a Schwartz's platter. Absolutely. So Schwartz's, yeah, it's necessary. Schwartz's is like the iconic deli of Montreal, you know, smoked meat platter with banana peppers, maybe a cherry cola. That's kind of something that I think we should have as an appetizer, right? Like a sort of help yourself. Yeah, yeah. We don't want to limit people's Schwartz's intake. They can decide. No, certainly not. Certainly not. And it would go really well with the Chateau Latour, of course. And then I was thinking that to remind him of the days on Hydra, it would be nice to then have some Greek delicacies on offer. I was thinking that we could make some Greek dips so there's this roasted red pepper and feta dip called, I think, hitipi that is delicious that, Mon, you would really like. I know you like that flavor profile. And then there's this awesome Greek chef called Akis. Um, he has a website called Cooking with Akis. And there are some phenomenal recipes that I've tried from his website. One is this like phyllo pie that has all kinds of delicious vegetables in it, as well as some roast chicken and feta. So that, I think, would make it casual pretty healthy to kind of counterbalance the Schwartzes, but also remind him of his wonderful days on Hydra. Oh, I love it. I also want to note that my brother-in-law, Lee Reitelman, is a singer-songwriter, and we will play some of his music during the dinner party because he is so inspired by Leonard Cohen and has a similar sense of kind of light touch, sense of humor, but with the depth of Leonard. So we'll make sure that you have in the playlist access to those songs. He goes by Lee Wright on Spotify. And yeah, there's a there's a bit of a Leonard in the family. Can't wait to hear it. Oh, was that the doorbell? Oh, there she is. Well, if it isn't one of the Canadian music industry's most fearless leaders, the business executive, author, TV host and producer, and former president of Sony Music Canada, Denise Donlin. Denise, thank you so much for coming. Here, have a glass of 1961 Chateau Latour. Oh my goodness, what a lovely wine. Thank you so much. I should, I, I, I'm going to come here more often. <laughs> <laughs> Denise, welcome. We were just sharing an imaginary smoked meat platter with a friend of yours and someone you worked quite closely with over the years. Here, have a hot banana pepper to go with your wine. <laughs> Please, can you tell us about the very, very first time that you met Leonard Cohen? Leonard, well, goodness, that would have to be very, very early in my days as a, as a wide-eyed music journalist. 
I think it was for his various positions album, so early 80s, and I remember studying my head off for the interview because, of course, I was really intimidated by interviewing Leonard Cohen for the first time. He was already a legend. And we went to a little cafe across the street with our cameras. He was wearing a beret, I recall, which kind of matched the cafe. And it was a really long interview. I relaxed into it because he's he's a very thoughtful man. And uh, we really had the luxury of time to sink in. I do remember him ordering two lattes for us, which arrived in massive bowls. And I have to say, it's the first time I'd interviewed Leonard and the first time I've ever experienced such a vat of pretty coffee. Mm, two peak experiences. <laughs> exactly. And Denise, in your brilliantly titled memoir, Fearless as Possible Under the Circumstances, you briefly mentioned the time Leonard Cohen and Irving Layton showed up at Much Music, which is Canada's MTV, where you were a host and producer, and then eventually general manager, I should say, and sang a song about bananas live on air. Can you tell oh. us a little bit more about that encounter? Oh my goodness. Well, that was another tense situation for me because I'd been asked to do the interview with Leonard, even though I was now running the station and very pregnant, by the way. So not what you'd call on-air friendly at a music station with a young, impressionable teenage audience. But, you know, sure, let's go. So once again, I spent hours on research because this was going to be a live interview. You couldn't fix it in the edit. And I wanted to do a really great job. So I was sitting in my chair, waiting, reviewing my my questions, when in walks not just Leonard, but he's got someone else with him. And suddenly everyone's scurrying around trying to add another chair to the interview set and adjust the lighting for three people. And luckily I recognized him as the great poet, author, Irving Layton. It was maddening because I was trying to be elegant and calm, but my brain was exploding, trying to remember everything I ever knew about Irving Layton from, from high school. So, I, you know, you could include them both equally in the conversation. The best thing to do is just to go with the flow and have some fun. So I sort of abandoned my questions. And luckily, they were both in really giggly moods. And I can't remember which inane question of mine ended up sparking it. But at one point they launched into a duet of, yes, we have no bananas. We have no bananas for sale. It was pretty ridiculous, but memorable because, you know, <laughs> Leonard could be a bit of a scamp. But I bet you guys have had similar situations like that when suddenly unidentified, unfamiliar guests show up to a dinner party that you've planned perfectly, no? <laughs> well, it's always a welcome surprise. That's so impressive that you're able to to recall, first of all, to ID Irving Layton in the days before Google image Oof. search. Yeah. And of course, Irving was first Leonard's professor at McGill and then became his dear friend and mentor in some ways. Is that do you think that's fair to say? You can imagine that I was sort of living in fear of ultimate judgment, right? <laughs> to have the master and the student and walk live trying to figure it out. But yeah, it was fun. It turned out really well. And you worked with Leonard Cohen over a period of decades, of course. In what ways, in your view, did he change? And in what ways did he remain the same? That's an interesting question. I'm not sure he changed over the years, but my impression of him certainly did as I got to work with him on various projects. And some of them were a bit fraught, right? He was a charming, thoughtful, self-possessed 
talented, obviously, artist, but he was also very much a human with a full range of emotions, and many of which I encountered over the years. You know, there were times as a record company president when I had to argue with him and push him in ways he initially did not want to go. And as difficult as those times were, we always came back to a place of love. And, you know, I have to say some of my most treasured momentums over the years are notes that I have from Leonard that are always signed, love, Leo, or assuring me that I will always have a place in my heart, <laughs> even after he'd threatened that I would not <laughs> on a few occasions. But anyway, yeah, so I have fond memories with him, but he... He was very human. He had the full range of, you know, from anger to love and everything in between. And, you know, artists are different from us mere mortals. They, they sometimes require careful handling. I'm just uh, actually just picking up on something that you said. I'm curious when there were directions that you were forced to push him in that he didn't necessarily want to go in. Can you give us an example or like expand on that a little bit? You know, in many artist contracts there, you know, we have the right to compile is what it's called. So in the olden days in the before times, record companies used to make a lot of money out of, out of compilations. You know, we'd put together the best of Michael Jackson or the best of Perry Como or whatever it was, Beyonce. And in this case, I had to put together an essentials compilation with Leonard. And, and he, was, he didn't want to do it, to be honest, but we convinced him that he could mas remaster all the songs. He could go in the studio with the best mastering artists, et cetera, et cetera. And I actually didn't need to ask his permission, but I had such respect for the artist that I wanted to. Anyway, long story short, he comes back with a track listing, and this is a double CD, so there's 30-odd uh, songs on it, and it's called The Essentials. And I'm looking at the track listing, and the song Marianne is missing. So I pop my note, and I say, Leonard, what happened to Marianne? He's like, well, that song was never as good in, in reality as it was in memory, and, uh, and I don't like it, and it's not going on. And I was like, no, no, no. We <laughs> You know, I can't put an Essentials record out and sell it around the world where people would just say, where's Marianne? Anyway, it's a, it's a long story, but we engaged his fan base. Leonard was always really good at sort of watching what was going on and sometimes engaging with his fans online. And some of them agreed with me and some of them agreed with him. And, you know, the release date was coming, but eventually I told them, I said, Leonard, I just have to put it out without your, without your permission. At which point point oh my god he said Denise literally I had to phone hold the phone away from my ear and he wasn't just angry at me it was every publisher and every label executive and every corporate suit who'd profited from artistic work but disrespected the talent which I of course did not anyway he said Denise if you insist on this course if you insist on going against my wishes and including this song when I have asked you not to then go ahead but you need to know that you will forever hold a much smaller place in my heart. Uh, oh, no. I know. Can you imagine? I could barely breathe. <laughs> Devastating. Oh, but I said, you know, Leonard, I'm really sorry, but that's a risk I have to go. I have to take. And of course, I put the phone down oh, and drank a very large glass of wine and worried about it all night. But the next day, I got a lovely note from him. And he said, you know, and I still have it. I'll, I'll read you just a thing. He said, dear Denise, your place in my heart is as secure as ever. That conversation was just business. I kind of enjoyed it. Oh I rarely get a chance to argue with anyone. <laughs> I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings. 
I have to answer to my you know, superiors just as you must answer to yours. And then he said, these are all very tiny matters and have no weight at all in the butcher shop we call the world. All that matters here is our heart. Let's keep ours open. Your old friend, Leonard. If you can hear me, baby, can you send some kind of sign? Are you with me or against me? Tell me which side of this line I'm trying to interpret The lights on the marquee The sirens... The, the record came out. It went on to sell gold and platinum in, in all over the world. And Marianne was, of course, on it. Marianne was on the record. I actually wanted to ask about Hallelujah because back in the vat of Café Olay days, before loaded words were exchanged uh, with the beret and the, and the bowl of warm coffee and milk. Did you know at that time? Because, of course, lots of people these days hear Hallelujah before anything else. That's kind of the entry point of Leonard Cohen for a lot of people. And my understanding is in 1984, when various positions came out, it wasn't widely considered to be a hit. No. Well, you know... Our reference, and Monica, you're in Europe, and I know, Emma, you've lived in Europe, but for North Americans, particularly in America, Leonard was not, he never, he didn't sell a lot of records in America. He was bigger in Europe, and so often the record company executives wouldn't necessarily really understand what would resonate with fans internationally. They were really focused on the U.S. often. So, yeah, Hallelujah wasn't one of those songs that people thought, you know, they, it has religious undertones to it, etc. But so many of Leonard's songs, you know, lyrically, as well as musically, but mostly lyrically, I would say, are the things that resonate with people. They're, they're things that people remember for years and years. Like one of my favorite songs is Anthem, right? That song where he talks about, well, it's a quote, literally, I have it on my wall and you know there's a crack in everything that's where the light gets in so he's able to sort of because he's a poet as well really put forth elements of songs in music and lyrics that are more enduring than the pop world that record company executives are focused on after leonard came down from mount baldy you were one of the first people to hear his album 10 new songs sitting on the floor of a modest hotel on the beach in santa monica <laughs> what was it like to listen to his work with him oh well the, you know first i should say that you know a little context for a listening session this listening session was non-standard in every way so this was his first record in a decade because he'd been up, as you said, on Mount Baldy. And there were huge expectations for a bestseller all over the world. And I was going to be the first record company to hear it. So, you know, a lot of pressure. Anyway, I arrived in Santa Monica and checked into, yes, the hotel was modest, was an understatement. But, you know, the record industry was imploding at the time and I was pretty budget conscious. <laughs> but I got a call from Leonard in the morning saying, I'm sorry, Denise, we have to cancel because it was some bank holiday in California and he couldn't get a sound engineer for the playback. And he asked me if I could stay another day. And I couldn't. I was actually meeting with Celine in Vegas the next day, but you could ne never mention another artist to the artist you're talking to because they are the only ones in the world. <laughs> 
So I needed a plan B. So I asked him if he had a reference CD, because normally when you're in the studio, you can't be in the studio all the time, and the engineer will knock off a, a listening copy and give it to the artist so that they can hear it at home and analyze it and see what they like. Anyway, he said, yes. He said, I've got a, a copy. Uh, do you have a CD player? So I'm looking around the room, and you can imagine this hotel room. It's literally a bed with a buffet or a, a bureau and two side tables, and that's it. That's the whole room. And there's this baby CD player radio, clock radio alarm on it, on one of the side tables. And I said, yes, I have a CD player. And he said, okay, I'll be right over. So I ordered some wine glasses because I brought a couple of bottles of Canadian wine because he is a patriot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I ordered a large cheese tray from room service. In a few hours, Leonard was at the door, you know, Natalie dressed. He was wearing a suit and a hat, even on a warm L.A. day. And uh, we uncorked the wine and settled in for some good gossip. And by the second bottle, I suggested perhaps we could hear the record. So I put the CD into the little desk radio and turned it on, and it just wasn't loud enough. So we adjusted the volume, still not loud enough. So I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll bring it closer to us. So I tried to pick up the CD player, but of course, being a modest hotel, motel, I should probably say, it was nailed to the side table. So I <laughs> couldn't bring it over. So Leonard says, well, perhaps we should get closer to it. So we literally walked over, sat on the floor between the bed with our feet under the bed and our backs on the wall, pressed play and started listening. And it was magical, I have to say. I mean, it's tough when you're listening to new music from an artist that you adore because they want you to love it and you have your record company hat on and you don't always you know so sometimes it's hard to come up with things to say I had no problem with this time and you know lots of comments he was obviously enjoying himself and then about four tracks in I got the giggles and Leonard looked over at me and he's like why is she laughing? I can read his mind. And I said, no, 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 Leonard, I'm not laughing at the songs. I'm I mean, look at us. This is one of Sony's biggest releases. You're one of the world's most beloved artists. And we're sitting on the floor, half in the bag, listening for the first time on a transistor radio. And then, of course, we fell about laughing, finished the rest of the wine and the entire cheese plate, by the way. And by the time he sauntered off down the hall, we'd had a whole worldwide marketing plan worked out and um, all was well. Of course, the next day his manager called and reworked the entire thing. But it was a triumph for 24 hours while it lasted. Such a great tale. And then, of course, this was the manager who, who swindled him, right? There was some misappropriation. Yes, yes. Well, you know, the good news to that is that it made him, he had to go on the road to, you know, recoup. And so the world from 2008 to 2010 got to see Leonard in arena-sized stadiums. And we'd no one had seen that for years and years and years. So he really, I mean, in 75 years old, he went out on a high. In some ways, made beautiful result out of a terrible situation. You mentioned uh, marketing briefly. We were wondering, did his sort of famous humility make him a difficult artist to promote, so to speak? I don't 
don't know about the famous humility having anything to do. I mean, he was difficult because he was very solitary. He's not unique in that regard. I think that, you know, for many artists, the true ones, the, the geniuses, and I don't use that word a lot, it's a really yin-yang existence, right? Because they have to literally have two different skins. One, to be porous enough and empathetic enough to create, and the other has to be almost reptilian enough to endure the slings and arrows of a crass, judgmental business world where they have to go and sell their art. So it's really tough, and it's, it's partly why I think a lot of artists develop those personas, you know, like Bowie was the thin white duke, and you know, Ms. Ciccone was Madonna, and Norma Jean was Marilyn Monroe, and, and now we've got Lady Gaga. So he wasn't hard to market at all, but you had to be careful because you couldn't always assume access to him. The best way to market a record is to put an, uh, an artist on the road, send them to a million cities, uh, have the interviewers interview him for eight hours a day, and then do a tour. But Leonard was not inclined to do that, usually. And you, of course... You mentioned this in your wonderful book that you're also married to a very well-known Canadian legendary artist. And so you have both your experience as a music producer, host, but executive, but also as someone who understands intimately on a personal level what it is to have to wear a mask like that. Um, do you think that puts you in a, in a unique position in terms of being able to relate to somebody like Leonard? Oh, it might, actually. But I should say that, you know, Murray and I have been married for over 30 years, partly because we don't mix that piece of our lives. <laughs> and I think, you know, that's partly why you see so many Hollywood stars and their marriages implode so early, is because their careers are so intimately intertwined with their professional life and their personal life. But yeah, I think I do have a bit of an insight into what it means to be an artist. And and I'm grateful for that. You had mentioned earlier that artists are unique creatures and need to be handled differently in some cases. And, you know, in the case of someone like Leonard Cohen, who, as we know, was such a ladies' man and perhaps <laughs> didn't always act in the interest, let's say, of the woman who was in love with him. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> if we use uh, Marianne as an example, do you think people like that, because they're producing something that's of such immense value to the world, do they get a kind of free pass? Like, is there a way to, you know, could he have settled down with Marianne and her son Axel and been that man as well as the Leonard Cohen we know? Mm, it's interesting because, you know, you mentioned that he was a, uh, he's a monk, a Buddhist monk. And um, when I, you know, really spent some time with Leonard, it was after he'd been up on Mount Baldy for all those years. And I think it's really interesting to, it's difficult, I should say, it's a challenge to look through our modern lens at artists, you know, lived in very different times. I remember some one rock star backstage who told me, you know, it was at the time of groupies for sure. And he said, you always have to remember that they're not there for the same reasons that you were there. And that was kind of interesting. But I never had this conversation with, with Leonard, but I know that he may have thought about it. I mean, I'm doing some yoga studies right now, and there are what they call the Buddhist ethics, called the yamas and the niyamas. And I mean, scholars will excuse me for my cursory knowledge, but they're kind of like the golden rules. 
And the yamas are the restraints, non-violence, truthfulness, no stealing or hoarding or coveting. And one of them is no misusing your sexual energy. So some would interpret that to be abstinence. Uh, many people really don't, but they do consider it. And I'm sure Leonard had his own interpretation of what misuse was. And I'm sure that changed over the years. That's interesting. Fascinating. Well, I know he's quoted once as saying that he went through a period of his life that was like a blue movie, that a blue movie is not about love, but that having grown up at a time, you know, in a time when you weren't able to kiss your date, you know, it was it was different in his childhood and his kind of pent up sexual energy was such that he needed to have this kind of decade or so of living in a blue movie in order to, I don't know, get to the other side or something. Well, those were the days too, right? In the 60s, it was, you know, free love and all that. But I would also caution that, again, as we look through the lens, that free love was somehow always freer for the guys than it was for the girls. There is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Well... We'd love to get your thoughts on our playlist because one of the things that we do for each imaginary dinner party is we ensure that we're listening to the right mood music, right? And mm -hmm. of course, having done so much, you've studied Leonard deeply, and I'm wondering if you could maybe enlighten us on some of his musical inspirations and perhaps point us towards some artists or songs that might make him feel at home. Well, I think you're always safe with the female singer-songwriters. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, certainly, you know, it depends on the time of the evening, of course. You know, you could start off with something more mellow, you know, Joni Mitchell, anything really. But River, I think, is a, is a fundamental tune. And Leonard was always in love with Canada, and he deeply admired and was a friend of Joni's. If you wanted to liven it up, you could go with some Janis Joplin. She's the woman, of course, in the song Chelsea Hotel. Apparently, <laughs> it was a, a very brief affair sparked by a chance encounter Leonard had with her. He met her in a hotel elevator while she was actually looking for Chris Christopherson. But, you know, those being the times, <laughs> off you went. And then, of course, I would certainly play, you mentioned Hallelujah early, I would certainly play Katie Lang's version of Hallelujah. I mean, that song has been covered by literally, I think we're over 600 artists at this point. But I remember sitting very close to Leonard when he was reduced to tears at a Songwriter Hall of Fame ceremony in Toronto where... Katie was on the stage singing that song to him in the front row, and it was a transcendent performance. And he wasn't the only one who sat there with tears rolling down their face, overwhelmed. Like, she was just so unbelievably brilliant. So hallelujah for sure. Wow. Okay, thank you for those tips. And I guess also we should ask, are... There any of his own songs that we really shouldn't play? Well, Marianne. Marianne. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's come round to that song again. I mean, the story of his of his letter to her on her deathbed is one of the most beautiful. Speaking of being reduced to tears, I mean, that mm. is just exquisite. That was a beautiful documentary. 
So yeah, other than, you know, Katie and her version of Hallelujah, which I would make an exception for, because I know how moved he was by that. I was just wondering about the scrambled eggs, because if we can get him to stay late enough, I was thinking maybe we could make him a plate of scrambled eggs. You'd mentioned, Denise, that he sometimes made eggs for others. Well, he he's he was very Spartan. You know, he lived quite frugally in, you know, his apartment in Montreal. People have seen pictures of it. It's, you know, literally a, a chair and a desk and a fridge and a, and a little stove. So, yeah, he would usually have eggs on hand and could whip, whip up a mean scrambled eggs. So, yes, if you got Leonard talking, he he is also nocturnal, like so many beautiful artists. So there's every chance you might be making eggs for him in the morning. How would you describe Leonard's legacy today? And I suppose looking forward as well. I mean, his legacy is that he's, he's a true artist and that his artistry will endure. He's definitely an icon and a legend. And as I said, we don't, I don't use those terms very often. I think the opportunity for when he went out and did those world tours in right up till 2010 at 75 years old was that he really came to love performing to massive crowds. And I think those experiences and for the audience with 30,000 people standing there and still having an intimate emotional experience with an artist on stage is testament to the fact that his artistry will endure. I mean, you know, the pop world is fickle. We, we think about hits and singles, and it may be a big hit, but it, it may not endure. But I think Leonard, as a poet, as an author, as a songwriter, he will absolutely endure. Thank you, Denise. Thank you so much, Denise. Now, shall we have one more glass of wine, guys? Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Leonard would heartily, heartily endorse another pour. <laughs> mm, love that Chateau Latour. <laughs> 1961, because that was when the Spice Box of Earth was published. Oh, yeah. nice. Can you hear that? Well, wow. I can hear that. <laughs> it's water, I'll reassure you. Thank you for listening to season one of Fanfare. It has meant so much to us that you've been with us. And we'll be back in a few weeks with a shiny new season full of cultural endeavors sophisticated and incredibly base across all of the brows thank you and thank you very much to our producers joel grove and matt bentley viney don't forget if you like us show us show us your love by rating and reviewing us on itunes and don't forget you can listen wherever you get your podcasts see you next time bye